This is a podcast by sciencemag.com. Sciencemag, come out and play. Sciencemag, come out and play. Sciencemag, come out and play. Articles and other sources are directly quoted during the episode. Check the script to find out such quotes. The link to the script is in the episode's description. Oh, hello, 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 dear English-speaking, reading, hearing listener. Welcome back to me at the Science Market, blog, dash podcast, dash Twitter and Instagram accounts, dash entity behind the unsuccessful e-shop Stuff and Go on Zazzle.com, which tells you science stories while studying a lot for a degree in how to read Icelandic volcanoes names without making your tongue need to get into therapy and your brain start working on a devolution 5 nanoseconds plan, and which talks to you thanks to the voice kidnapped via voodoo wireless trick from a very, very dumb human. And which dazzle this in English question mark language that is to proper English what a record-breaking snowstorm in New York this winter is to something disproving global warming. Today I'm gonna tell you a story about urban areas and food production. In assessing the potential of urban horticulture, UH, as a concrete source of food for urban areas inhabitants, a bunch of researchers of the University of Sheffield, England, UK, led by Dr. Jill L. Edmondson, built a case study by which they show that there is way enough land available within the city of Sheffield to feed its people with all the fruit and vegetables they need. Dr. Edmondson and colleagues, aka the eScience Pack, then published their research on the science journal Nature Food. Now, dear listener, before going on with the detail of the eScience Pack's work, let's provide some context here, okay? Otherwise, many things will be unclear. First of all, you are probably asking yourself what urban horticulture UH be, right? Well, let's start with the term horticulture. Horticulture is the part of agriculture that grows fruits, flowers, vegetables, but also spices like black pepper, cardamom, ginger, and also tuber crops like potatoes, sweet potatoes, sweet beet, cassava, and also mushrooms, bamboo, plantation crops like coconut, cocoa, cashew, oil palm, coffee, tea, rubber, and also medicinal and aromatic plants like aloe, angostura, arnica, basil, belladonna, carob, cinnamon, curcuma longa, mace, licorice, rosemary, etc, etc. So now that we know what horticulture is, since the study of Dr. Edmondson and colleagues is about urban horticulture, let's define what urban, for the notoriously precise and accurate research people, actually mean. Well, with urban areas, the science people mean areas that consist of predominantly human-made surfaces, have high concentration of people, and are the hub of economic activity. So, dear listener, in the end, urban horticulture is horticulture made in urban areas that is, in super short, basically the cultivation 
production of veggies and fruits within a city. Now, the e-science pack in its study explores two kinds of urban horticulture, the soil-based horticulture, SBH, and the controlled environment horticulture, CEH. Ah, I can hear you violently screaming, dear listener. For the sake of the mighty BND, the book of never-ending definitions, what are those two now? Eh, I know, I know, pal, I know, I'm sorry, I guarantee you we are almost done with the definitions and premises. But without them, the story of the city of Sheffield and its potential urban-grown food won't be clear at all. So, as just said, the urban horticulture can be soil-based and or practiced on controlled environment. The soil-based urban horticulture is the urban horticulture done within green infrastructure, that is, places like parks, gardens, roadside verges, and woodland. So, you know, green areas. The controlled environment urban horticulture, instead, is the one performed on flat roofs within grey infrastructure, that is, for instance, on the flat roofs of commercial and non-commercial buildings. Unlike the soil-based one, the controlled environment horticulture doesn't need soil or much of it, since, for instance, we are talking about hydroponics that uses water as the growing medium instead of soil, and aquaponics, a system that integrates aquaculture, that is fish farming, with hydroponics, in so creating symbiotic relationships between the plants and the fish. Aquaponics, indeed, uses the nutrient-rich waste from fish tanks to fertigate hydroponics production beds. And hydroponic bed cleans water for fish habitat. Okay, now that we have compiled our glossary and explained the basic terms, let's cut to the chase of the e-science pack research. Dr. Adamson and colleagues' work basically aims to understand the potential of urban horticulture as a provider of food security for people living in urban areas. To address this issue, the e-science pack chooses to build a case study about the English city of Sheffield. Sheffield, indeed, is a good choice for a case study of such a kind. It is the sixth most populated city in England and Wales, about 580,000 people, more or less like half Milan or half Dallas. And above all, Sheffield population is likely to suffer some level of food insecurity, as the city, being this typical of larger urban areas, belongs to the most deprivated 25% areas in England, according to the Index of Multiple Deprivation, that measures this index, how deprived an area is, by identifying the degree to which people are disadvantaged by factors such as low income, unemployment, lack of education, poor health, and crime. So, once identified the target city, Sheffield, the e-science pack first wants to understand the potential productive space of urban horticulture, that is, how much land within the city could be used for both kind of urban horticulture, that are, as both said, the soil-based one and the one practiced on controlled environment. To calculate how much land there is in the city of Sheffield for urban horticulture, the researchers consult the local authority boundary and collect data from two high spatial resolution datasets, the Ordnance Survey Master Map, which provides a detailed and accurate view of Great Britain's landscape, from roads to fields to buildings and trees, fences, paths, and more, and the Google Earth imagery. The e-science pack then uses this data in a geographic information system, a GIS, to map the green and grey above-mentioned infrastructures of Sheffield. And if you are wondering what a geographical information system a GIS be, well, dear listener, a GIS is a tool that can process, display, and integrate different data sources, including maps, digital elevation models, GPS data, images, and tables. So, in 
short gist data models provide a representation of how the actual world looks. So, after collecting and elaborating all this data, Dr. Anderson and colleagues know what follows about Sheffield. The city covers an area of 368 square kilometers, like more or less Detroit or roughly a third of Hong Kong or Rome. Of these 368 square kilometers, 227 are urban or periurban, comprising green and grey infrastructure. Oh, and periurban areas, dear listener, are those areas that surround metropolitan areas and cities, but are neither urban nor rural in the conventional sense. In short, periurban areas are the buffer zone between city and country, a zone in transition. At this point, the e-science pack starts with the soil-based urban horticultural assessment. The researchers find two things. First, that the whole Sheffield green space covers 45% of the city, more than 10 square kilometers, and this is a percentage in line with the rest of the cities in the UK. And second, that Sheffield green infrastructure is mostly located in the suburbs that can be defined as lower density areas that separate the residential and commercial areas from one another. Now, the 38% of Sheffield green infrastructure is made of private gardens, which are clearly not always used for soil-based horticulture. 1.3% of the land of Sheffield green infrastructure is indeed made of urban allotments, which are plots specifically destined to be used for urban horticulture by individuals or households, and that UK authorities, like those of other countries in Europe, are legally required to provide for rent to enlist the citizens who ask for them. As a matter of fact, urban allotments are, in terms of area, one of the main sources for urban horticulture in the old continent. So, Dr. Anderson and Science Pulse properly set and put at use their above-mentioned geographic information system, the GIS, and by doing that, they identified extra land within Sheffield Green infrastructure that can potentially be used for soil-based urban horticulture, but that is not at the present used. These extra land are parcels split into community garden spaces and farther allotment spaces. The community garden spaces are smaller, the parcel size ranges from 600 to 3000 square meters, while allotment spaces are bigger than 3000 square meters, which are about 1.5 times the floor area of the famous Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles, just to give you a benchmark, you know. And these allotment spaces are formed by groups of plots with an average surface of 250 square meters. Now, in the end, putting all these different types of usable surfaces together, the e-science pack with its survey finds that, all in all, each person in Sheffield potentially has 98 square meters of land available for soil-based urban horticulture. Of course, the researchers admit that these represent an upperestimate, since chunks of such an identified suitable land for sure would not be usable in reality. Plus, growing green stuff on, for instance, domestic gardens, could suffer disproportionate losses to infrastructure, like access storage and so on. Nevertheless, Dr. Edmondson and colleagues underline that even if the Sheffield people could actually use just a quarter of those 98 square meters per capita they potentially have 
have at the disposal for urban horticulture, while each of them would end up cultivating the same amount of land per capita nationally used for UK commercial horticultural production of fruits and vegetables. Actually, even a bit more, 24.5 versus 23 square meters. So, dear listener, to sum up, the first results of the e-science spec study is to show that each and every one of the people living in a common mid-large English city like Sheffield could practice soil-based urban horticulture on a piece of land which surface is from one to four times as large as the one that the industry of horticulture in Great Britain currently uses per capita. And these are just the findings about soil-based horticulture performed on green infrastructure. What does the e-science digs up about the other kind of urban horticulture we mentioned? The controlled environment horticulture that is doable on the flat roofs of Sheffield Grey infrastructure? <laughs> the answer, dear listener, after the commercial break. Did you always want a garden so beautiful and lush that the gardens of Versailles are indeed the result of the fact that the E14 travels in time as a result of the sick twisting and yet to be even taught sequel of Back to the Future 14th Temesse Royale and then he, Louis the 14th, sees your garden and says Well, bleu, the Rwanda America is orange because from your garden he can see your TV tune on the news and then he is pleased by your well-being but a bit too nosy neighbor who strangely is always close to the fence when your wife is sunbathing and who, the neighbor, thinks that he, meaning Louise Fortin, is a lunatic escaped from the psychiatric world of a nearby institute. And then he, again, meaning Louis the Fortin's, as a consequence of the shock, forgets who he is, becomes a gardener, does your garden, and then trips on the hose, hits his head on the border made of fake Kentucky stones of a little pond he himself had designed, regains consciousness back in his time, thinks it has all been an odd but humbling dream, decides the hell humility under the Russell and so he wants a palace with gardens way better than the one he did for you since in the end he was a really crappy gardener and as a king he can have for the real top-notch professionals unlike you cheap wannabe well look to be honest at this point I actually lost my train of thought and I can't remember anymore what his commercial is about so awkward oh, wait a minute I think it was maybe something related to plants oh, okay 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 let's just say something like this. If you don't have the green thumb but want one, provided you can't cut one out of a hike's hand for obvious reasons, for reference watch first the classical Lufarino TV show from the 70s and then the Marlowe's while you can serenely skip the Eric Bana and Edward Norton's ones. If you don't have the green thumb but want one, well we sell nice green markers just around the corner. Actually we sell markers of all kind of colors and liquors. Yeah, those two. Okay, okay, we don't sell markers, we just sell liquors. But hey buddy, trust me when I say that, after all that garden nonsense, well, it really looks like you can use some booze. And then more.
So, dear listener, back to the e-science pack and the controlled environment urban horticulture, doable on the flat roofs of Sheffield. Dr. Admonson and colleagues with their research find that the commercial city area of Sheffield is 2.3 square kilometers large, that buildings cover 58% of such an area, and that a quarter of this building area is in turn covered by flat roofs. We are talking of a surface as wide as about 32 football fields, football as in soccer. You USA listener. The e-science pack, of course, is aware that not all flat roofs are usable for controlled environment urban horticulture. So the 32 football fields are an upper limit. Moreover, dear listener, this upper limit corresponds just to half a square meter per person, meaning each Sheffield citizen could potentially have at disposal as much space as that covered by a very small storage closet top to practice control environment urban horticulture. Now, at the first look, this doesn't seem much at all. I agree with you, dear listener. But you have to consider some facts. First, controlled environment horticulture could allow a year-round cultivation by employing greenhouses and rainwater for irrigation. Second, its production systems, like the above-mentioned hydroponics and aquaponics, have a very high-yielding nature. Third, controlled environment horticulture focuses on producing a smaller number of high-value, high-yield crops. Take tomatoes, for example. The average yield of hydroponically grown tomatoes is 42.9 kilograms per square meter per year. Given this, if just one out of ten of the flat roofs found in Sheffield by the e-science pack study were actually used for tomato production via controlled environment horticulture, well, dear listener, then it would be possible to grow enough tomatoes to feed nearly 2% of the Sheffielders per year on a five-a-day diet, which consists in eating a minimum of 400 grams of fruit and vegetables a day, specifically five portions of fruit and veg in total, not five portions of each, with a portion of fruit or vegetables being 80 grams. The five-a-day diet, by the way, is a diet advised by the World Health Organization, the WHO, advised fully accepted by the same British National Health Service to lower the risk of serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, and some types of cancer. So, to give enough tomatoes to 2% of the people of Sheffield means to satisfy the healthy diet of thousands. But it gets better. According to Dr. Edmondson and colleagues, indeed, if the amount of the Sheffield flat roofs used for controlled environment horticulture were 75% instead of the just above mentioned they considered the 10%, then the number of Sheffielders provided with enough tomatoes for a five-a-day super-healthy diet would rise six times from 2% to 12%. Now, dear listener, if you are wondering why the e-science pack precisely thinks of about tomatoes, well, the answer is because the UK presently imports almost 90%, 86%, of its total tomato supply, and this crop alone accounts for more than one-fifth, the 21%, of the value of all vegetable crops imported in the United Kingdom. So, dear listener, if you put together all these facts, you see that controlled environment horticulture can give an actually sensible contribute to the potential of urban horticulture as a whole. And what's this whole? What are the final numbers of urban horticulture? I guess you are asking out loud while brandishing a bunch of half-gone veggies and rotten fruits, ready to throw them at my voice if I don't answer properly? Well, dear listener, I've just finished giving you the numbers of a controlled environment 
urban horticulture. As for the numbers of the other branch of urban horticulture, the soil-based one, well, here they come. Dr. Edmondson and colleagues consider that with a quite probable average yield across all allotment lands of 1.8 kg per square meter per year, then soil-based urban horticulture can feed 3% of Sheffield population on a 5-day diet. Now, dear listener, if you add up the existing area of allotments and domestic gardens and the potential new allotment and community garden sites of Sheffield, well then, this total surface is almost 6 square kilometers wide. And the science pack says that if all this land, the 100% of it, were used for soil-based horticulture, then this could grant a 5-day diet to more than 700,000 people per year, namely the 122% of the population of Sheffield. But of course, I'm with you, dear skeptical listener, a full exploitation of the land of Sheffield green infrastructures is rather unrealistic. So the e-science pack elaborates a more realistic scenario, where soil-based horticulture is practiced only in 10% of the domestic gardens and expanded into 10% of the additional land identified by their research. Well, dear listener, with these percentages of green infrastructure land use, the soil-based urban horticulture could feed 12% of Sheffield population per year. So if you add up this possible scenario, 12% of the population fed, with the present actual production of the allotment land now in use, the above-mentioned 3% of the population fed, you see that soil-based urban horticulture alone each year could fill the stomach of almost one of Sheffield inhabitants out of six, with all the vegetables and fruits he, she needs for a healthy diet. Now, dear listener, I am a dumb brainless blog slash podcast, but I can clearly foresee the questions slash objections you have at this point. One, yeah, 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 it's all a beautiful green color movie with unicorns and Bambi and their offsprings, Bambi corns, and edible low calories, the rainbows, and broccoli that tastes like chocolate, and so on and on. But how many people in Sheffield should have the green thumb to carry on the e-science park scenario? And how much work should these people put on cultivating their piece of green and gray infrastructure to achieve the target production the e-science pack refers to? Plus hydroponics and aquaponics systems, and greenhouses, and rainwater recovery structure, and so on, all on roofs. Indeed, the whole controlled environment urban horticulture deal sounds pretty complex to be actually feasible, don't you think? Plus, okay, Sheffield the case study, but is urban horticulture something that can actually work in reality, if not in every, at least in most of the presently existing urban areas? Plus, well, I'm still thinking about this. Let's skip straight to the next one. Plus, finally, okay, cool, let's invest time and money and our work so that to be able to cultivate urban land and grow food for the people of the cities. But you know, is it really necessary? Why can't we simply go on like we are doing now and let the food industry and commercial horticulture do the job of putting food on people's tables? Well, dear clever listener, yours are all good points and you'll read and hear the answer to them in the next part of this post slash episode. But before leaving you with the powerful itch all over your cerebral cortex, I'm sure you feel at the end of each part of every multiple part post slash episode I do. Well, let me finish as a sneak peek to the answer to your last question with the opening statement of Dr. Edmondson and colleagues' research paper. 
Food insecurity is a growing issue in the global north, where the majority of the population, sometimes in excess of 80%, lives in urban areas. Okay, till next time, pal. And if you spare some time and feel like doing it, please subscribe and or rate this podcast and or leave a comment on the blog and or take a tour on my stuff and go written stuff and go SNG eShop on Zazzle.com so you can see if there's something you like and or make a donation clicking on the donate button of this dumb beautiful blog's homepage. Ciao! Science man, come out and play. Science man, come out and play. Science man, come out and play. This is a podcast by sciencemag.com.